And I've got to tell you, I, um, I leaned over to Mark and said, I think um, maybe God's got some plans to do a work among us because of all the distractions that He has uh, thrown our way this morning to, to keep us from focusing upon Him. Uh, our staff this week has, uh, practically everybody on staff has been sick at one time or another, and uh, Jason is out right now with, uh, with a fever. And then uh, I came in, and I, I sat down, and my mic fell apart. <laughs> and so I had to, to go out during one of my favorite hymns of all time for all the saints and uh, fix that. And then uh, our little equipment malfunction up here. And then I... I come up here, and, and my, my little clock says 4.20 p.m. <laughs> but if, if these are all tricks of Satan, the joke's on him, because I don't pay any attention to this clock anyway, so. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, after I read this scripture, let's pray and and ask God to protect us and to help us really to focus in these next few moments upon, upon his word and his message. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, all of us have things in our lives that, that would try to pull us away from focusing upon you and your word. And so, I would ask and we would ask that in these next few minutes, your Holy Spirit would just give us a, a laser-like focus, desiring to hear from you, what you have to teach us, what you have to challenge us with. Lord, we, we need you, and we want to love you more. Will you help us? Will you? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, often uh, when people think of October 31st, typically one thinks of dressing up in, in costumes, going trick-or-treating for Halloween. Uh, you probably have a lot of memories of that. I, I know I do. Uh, I was thinking about what's, what's the best treat you ever got? The best treats for me were always the uh, chocolate bars. 
That, that was always my favorite. And then I, I thought about the other end of the spectrum. Uh, I think I would, I'd put three things in that category. One would be uh, apples when people, I, I don't know if they do that anymore, but sometimes they, they would, you know, somebody would give you an apple uh, and it made your bag heavy and, uh, you know, who wants an apple on October 31st? And then there were the popcorn balls, which I appreciate all the work they went to, but uh, that were in plastic. I don't know if you ever had any of them. Um, and if your, your mom made them or whatever, I'm sorry, but they were just inedible. So, <laughs> so those hit the trash can too. And then... And then the, the third thing was... Uh, well, it was gospel tracks. That was my third thing that I, I, I never wanted to get. And I, I appreciate that, you know, people wanted to give me something healthy to eat like an apple, that they went to all the trouble of the popcorn ball, and they cared about my soul. But I wanted candy. So that was, you know, that was what I would have thought of. If you had ever asked me what's uh, October 31st, I always enjoyed it as a child. Well, ironically, and you, you know this because we've been talking about it this fall, uh, something else happened on October 31st. 500 years ago, it ended up giving us, returning us to the greatest treat we could ever have. And here's the mystery but I'm also going to talk about people in costume. So hang in there with me. It started out, uh, not really here, but I will begin uh, the account during a, a thunderstorm. Martin Luther uh, was studying to uh, be a lawyer. His father was very happy with that. But he was walking home uh, one day, and, and, or one night, and, and during this time there was a great deal of uh, superstition and so on, and uh, a really bad thunderstorm came, so much so that he uh, cried out and made a promise to God, well, he made it to St. Anne, but it was kind of like making it to God. And who knew that St. Anne would hold him to this promise, you know? But he said that he would uh, become a priest, a monk, if he got home alive. Well, he did get, get home alive. And he did follow through on his promise. He became a priest, he became a monk. And he became a very good monk, as monks go. He was convinced, uh, like the Roman church of uh, that day, like the medieval church, he was convinced that God punished the wicked and rewarded those that did righteous things. And so he wanted to be the best monk he could, and so 
Luther tried to do uh, righteous things. He tried to live a righteous life. By his own words, he said, he became a monk without reproach. But all the while, down deep, he knew that he was no closer to God than he had ever been. He was frustrated by his own consciousness of his unrighteousness, and he was in fear that that God that his, his church taught would hold him to that, would punish him. And that was the life that he lived. He would go to confession every day, and all the other monks went to confession, and uh, he would confess sin after sin after sin, and then he would get up from confession, and he would go toward his duties for the day. They all had tasks to do, and while he was going, he would think of something else, or he would sin in his mind, and he would make a beeline back for the uh, father confessor, and he would confess again. And he did that so much <clears throat> that the other monks were beginning to say, come on, Martin, you know, this is ridiculous. They began to think maybe he's just lazy trying to get out of work and so on. And at one point, the father confessor said, come back to me when you got something real to confess. That's how sensitive though his conscience was. When he got to the point of uh, doing the Holy Eucharist communion, he, uh, his father was present and so on, and uh, he wasn't happy about him becoming a, a monk, but he had finally given in to that. Said, well, if he's going to be that, I will try to support him. So he came to this first communion that he was going to serve, and, and Luther, as he began to handle the elements, absolutely froze up out of fear, knowing his own unrighteousness. And he couldn't even complete the sacrament. Certainly, he must have had a great deal of love for God. It was just the opposite. This is what he said. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. As if indeed it's, it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Luther did what, what many uh, monks and nuns would do. Uh, he made a pilgrimage to Rome. For him, he thought, if I go to Rome, perhaps I will get some clarity. But instead, when he, 
when he got to Rome, he saw the corruption of his own church. He saw the priests with mistresses. He saw them hurrying through, doing uh, one mass right after another. And, and when he entered in to do some masses for people, uh, they, they would say, Pasa, Pasa, faster, faster. They were just going through the motions. <clears throat> he made his way to what are called the holy stairs, the Scala Sancta. Those are uh, the, the stairs that are said to be the stairs that led up to Pilate's house in Jerusalem. And that's where pilgrims would go. And they would go and, and they would kneel down at the bottom and then they would confess, they would say a rosary and then they would go up a step supposedly each time helping with their sentence to purgatory. In the back of Luther's mind, because he had, he had read it but, but didn't get it, was this, this statement that, that I read earlier, the righteous shall live by faith. But for Luther... And for those next to him and for his church, it was not living by faith. It was, no, we live by fear. By fear. By fear. He made his way up to the top of those stairs. And as he got up there, his son recorded later that he said, who knows if it's so. It did nothing for him. Of course it didn't. Because that's not where salvation comes from. Paul, the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit said it's by faith. To deal with this confused monk, his supervisor said, we will make you a professor. You who are professors, that clears your mind, doesn't it? Right? That'll fix things. Make him a professor, and that might have been their biggest mistake ever. Because what that meant was that he would study the Scripture all day long and he would lecture on it. And so Luther uh, studied Romans. He studied Galatians. He studied Habakkuk. The passage will be in next Sunday, Lord willing. And again and again, he saw... This phrase that we find in Romans 1.17, the, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what he said in his writings. He said, 
as he studied these things over a period of time. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Luther came to understand that righteousness is not man's gift to God. It is God's gift to man. But Luther continued to struggle with the practices of his church. One particularly uh, uh, huge struggle that he could not get around was the selling of indulgences. And so he wrote about that. Now here's what happened with uh, indulgences. The primary name, the priest that was associated with the uh, uh, the selling of indulgences uh, was Johann Tetzel. And here's what he would do. He would go into a town with great pomp and uh, representing the church with all of the symbols and authority of the church, and then he would preach to those who would gather. And, of course, you can imagine uh, uh, people would gather because this was the only way they could learn the truth. They couldn't read it on their own at that point. And here's what he would preach. If you give money, it will help your relatives who have already died to get out of purgatory sooner. There in purgatory, they are suffering as if it's hell. The difference is that it, it's not forever. And he would say to them, wouldn't you want to give for your mother, for your father, your grandmother, children that you have lost? And so you can imagine if I knew no better and I had been there, I would have said, of course, yes. How do I give? The statement that he was famous and there's various versions of it. Every time the coin in the coffer rings, in the cup rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And with all of the money, and they were making a lot of money, that's how they built St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so they were in bondage to that. Luther said no. This is not the gospel. This is not how we have a relationship with God. It cannot be. And so he determined this is my church. 
I want us to talk about this out in public. He was lecturing about it. He was writing about it. And, and the way that they would start a public debate, and he wanted to debate with other scholars, is that they would write things down, a challenge, a question, a statement, and they would typically tack it on the church door. He was in Wittenberg. And so he wrote some 95 statements that came to be known as the 95 Theses. And he tacked them to the door in Wittenberg so that there would be a, a rigorous debate and nobody debated him. No interest in debate from the scholars of the day. But some of his students took it down. They translated it into German. They used that great invention of the day, the, the printing press. And within several weeks, those statements were in virtually every village in Germany, causing an uproar. Luther had no intention of destroying his church or hurting his church. He wanted it to go back to the Scripture. And that's where we would say the public reformation began. There were many reformers before leading up to that and afterwards. But that's the story, that's the account of what we're celebrating that happened 500 years ago. To really understand it, I think we need to speak of several doctrines, and I want to boil it down. There's, you could go in a lot of different directions with this, but, but I want us to have three, uh, look at three basic uh, things that formed Martin Luther. That, that sent him into crisis and then pulled him out of that very crisis. The first one is that the Bible is the authority and not man. The Bible is the authority and not man. Now that's going to get you in trouble if you believe that. Uh, Luther's intense study of the Bible is what both comforted him but also stirred him up to where he could not remain silent. He couldn't rest on the traditions of the church. He couldn't rest on the, even the authority of the church that he had a great deal of respect for. He had to submit to his conscience and his conscience to the word of God. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Does it sound like he really, really saw how living God's word was? To illustrate that grip that it had on Martin Luther, after the posting of his 95 theses on the door, several years later, 
he was called uh, to a council meeting. Okay, let's call it what it is, a diet or diet. And yes, it was in Vorms. So that's, it's spelled W-O-R-M-S. So that's why we call it the diet of worms, okay? Put that behind us. But at that, at that meeting, he was told to recant his writings. Uh, they, they, they put all of his writings out on a table. And they said, we want you, we demand that you recant from these writings. And there he stood up and made this amazing statement. Can you give me 24 hours to think about that? And so they did. They recessed and came back the next day. After looking at all of uh, uh, the things that he had written, and he put them in different kinds of categories in terms of his response, not recanting, but acknowledging that he was not infallible uh, and neither are, are popes or councils. But he did make a statement at that point that is associated with him. There are many Many versions of that statement. I want, I want to share with you Roland Bainton's statement, and, and that's from uh, one of the biographies. Uh, it's my favorite biography of Luther that we actually have in our resource center if you want to purchase a copy. Uh, but he, he records the pinnacle of uh, Luther's uh, speech and statement in this way. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther was so gripped by the authority of the Scripture meaning God's authority, that while he may have had a fear of man, he, he knew that he was probably signing his death sentence by refusing to recant. And he had some fear of man, but it didn't compare to his fear of God in terms of God's authority in his life. By the end of Luther's life, he had written over 60,000 pages of material, and yet he said he hoped that his books would disappear and only the Holy Scriptures be read. That was his view of the Scripture itself. The second doctrine that gripped Luther was, my righteousness is not enough. He knew his righteousness was not enough. Galatians 2.16. I know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. 
Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. By observing the law, no one will be justified. That was so contrary to what his church was teaching, and yet this was the word of God. Now, why did Paul, the Apostle Paul, think that was necessary to state? Well, because in the first century when when Paul wrote, there was a real belief uh, among the Jews that they were justified or became righteous by obeying the law. That was what they struggled with. That's what Galatians is about. Uh, in, uh, in fact, here's an epitaph on a first century tomb. Here lies Regina. She will live again, return to the light again, for she can hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance, so far so good, to the worthy and the pious, in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you, this your chaste life, this your love for your people, this your observance of the law, your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you for all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. It was right on her tomb. Her hope was in her works, and others were affirming that. And, and yes, this was in the, the first century but I could see this on, on gravestones today if, if they had enough space for it. When this type of theology began to infect the church, Paul had to respond, and that's what Gal- the book of Galatians is. His response was like Martin Luther later in, in the context of the uh, Protestant Reformation, that anyone who thinks he can win acceptance from God by keeping the law or any part of it, has fallen into a soul-destroying form of legalism. He's trying to be justified by doing what the law commands, yet when it comes to being accepted by God, observing the law is completely ruled out by the Word of God. So if, if what Luther discovered, my righteousness is not enough, then what is enough? And that's the third doctrine that formed him, and that is the righteousness of Jesus is enough. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness was sufficient Because he never sinned. That's why we say that that righteousness is not man's gift to God, it is God's gift to man. And if it is God's gift to man, how do we receive it? Well, back to Galatians 2, 16, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it meant in in Romans that that the just shall live by faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone 
for salvation, not Christ plus my works, not Christ plus anything in Jesus Christ alone. There is a lostness and insecurity when people try to buy their way to heaven. Religion does that. Religion, you've heard this before, is spelled D-O, do. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. What Christ has done for us, we cannot add to it. And mankind has often tried when faith crises come. Mankind has tried to invent their way of dealing with their sin. What gripped Luther was a new sense of freedom that was so joyous that any threat to him paled in the light of the freedom he now had in Christ. So what's, you know, what or who is the hero of what we're talking about? Is it the Bible? Is Luther the hero? The only hero in this is Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the crisis of faith. So what's it mean to me? What are the results when faith comes into crisis? Well, if you want to think about what people have tried, all you got to do, you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, go back to the garden, go back to Adam and Eve. They came to their crisis in faith when they realized that they were naked and ashamed. And what did they do? They sought to clothe themselves, their own works. They sewed leaves of a fig tree together. That was their costume. How'd that work? Well, it didn't work. It wasn't sufficient for them to cover them any more than it would be for you or anyone else. It's frustrating. What they tried didn't last and it didn't cover. And that's what happens with any of our works. And so what happened then? God slew an animal and clothed them. He shed the blood of an animal to cover them, foreshadowing the shedding of his son's blood to cover our guilt and shame. What gripped Martin Luther was when he realized that what Jesus did was enough and to try to add to that was not only unnecessary, but it, it is an offense to God in Christ that means the struggle for righteousness is over because Christ is perfectly righteous. In Christ, the struggle to meet man's standard 
is over because Christ has met every standard in Christ. The focus on guilt and sin is over because he took it on himself on the cross. Righteousness is not your gift to God. It is God's gift to you. And you can be gripped by the same comforting truth that gripped Luther by trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we thank you for Martin Luther and for other reformers that, that stood upon your word and, and brought your word back to bear. But our hero is Christ. We thank you for his finished work on the cross. Lord, enable us by faith to receive that and not to trust in what we are doing, but to trust in him alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.